Welcome, one and all, across the Alpha Quadrant and beyond to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Handling frequencies are open. You can't even handle mind games from a hundred-year-old router. Lower Decks, Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 207, Where Pleasant Fountains Lie, comes to you now via Dragon's Blood Flame. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. Pete, in the last week, Trek Movie uh, published an interview with Akiva Goldsman. He, you know, behind uh, so much of the recent Star Trek stuff, including Strange New Worlds, uh, I think actually the interview was had at Star Trek Day, but uh, only published in the last week. But a couple of things I had wanted to point out here. One is he reiterated that they are going, uh, quote-unquote, fully episodic. He then dials that back in the next sentence to say, now when I say fully, I'm slightly exaggerating, and the uh, character arcs are still serialized. It's not like Jim Kirk will see Edith Killer die one week and be fine the next week. Uh, he goes on to kind of relate it as like uh, like a Twilight Zone that gives you a kind of pop that is really the province of episodic storytelling. So your thoughts there, Pete? I mean, we've heard this so many times. Just show me footage, okay? Get me the show. We know when Discovery airs. We know the month that Picard Season 2 comes. Get me to Strange New Worlds now, please. Uh, I'd say circa May 15th is probably when that hits. Uh, Pete, speaking of seeing footage, uh, Trek Movie mentioned that in that character reveal video, uh, there clearly had been some further visual changes uh, in relation to Pike and Company on Discovery. And Pete, I want to read this full quote here from Oscar-winning writer Akiva Goldsman. I'm going to leave one word out. Um, so the question was, did you want to get even closer to the look of the original series? And he said, yeah, I would say we iterated one more time. I think that the organizing principle uh, for our iteration was our view of canon. But having said that, we body English the bleep out of some things in order to make it work. So, Pete, what are your thoughts about body Englishing stuff? <laughs> Whatever, man. I, I just think the talk is cheap at this point and to think that it's been so long this year since we've had live action Star Trek. Let's let's get there. With that, let's head into our ready rundown. Program complete. Enter when ready. Captain Freeman's helped out a devil species that had a hundred-year civil war due to Agamus, the evil computer. It was Agamus all along. They've got the hard drive, and it's headed to the Daystrom Institute's lockup. Agamus is a schmoozer. On the bridge, Queen Palana's on the horn. Her ship is in trouble, and the chief engineer of the Cerritos simply is needed. Who's the queen? Mom of Chief Andy Billups. She's the queen of Hysperia, and Andy has given up his claim to the throne. Hysperia is a medieval fair planet, and Andy, he needs to remain, um, virginal. If he loses that, then he's getting the crown. But no sexy time trick, says Mom. Won't you fix my ship? Rutherford is asked to be the number two on the mission to fix the Monavine. Rutherford is nervous, but he's got this. Can Hysperian culture be distracting? Yes, with its lush medieval-slash-futuristic setting. Yes, it is. The problem seems to be a deep one, too. So deep. 
Billups finds a faulty resonator, which really should have shown up on initial scans. Hmm. Anyway, Mom is, well, not proud, but satisfied. Billups is called away by Freeman, and Rutherford's left to patch up the job. In Freeman's ready room, the two can talk, but explosion on the Monavine! Disaster! The Queen is dead, and so is Rutherford. Tendy hears the news, crying in a touching moment. With the Queen dead, Billups must resign his commission. A king is needed, and he must perform the royal copulation. Will it hurt? Meanwhile, Tendy scans for Rutherford, and it seems his implant is online. She investigates finding Rutherford and Queen Mom alive during a feast. He did such a good job, and the explosion was a trick to get Billups, um, stupping. Rutherford needs to stop Andy from doing the do. The royal guards tasked with the job are impressed, but Andy hasn't done the royal do since he's still warming up. Back in engineering, Andy's happy being in Starfleet, not living in a castle and being around dragons and eating mutton. Rutherford's had an awesome day stepping outside his comfort zone. Earlier, the lower deckers were hanging out by their bunks, a gorgeous tracking shot showing them as the camera moves in through the rear bay window. Boimler has a phaser rifle because he's headed to wrangling centipedes on Dankst. It's a great wet work mission, and Ransom has chosen him. But wait, job update. Boimler's now headed to the Daystrom Institute with Mariner. How this happened, Boimler wonders. But on the shuttle, they're caught in a fungus, and a crash occurs on the desert planet. The shuttle is beyond repair, but the planet has a breathable atmosphere. It turns out other ships have crashed here too, and the shuttle's replicator is only making black licorice. At least Agamus is still working. It notes that Boimler has strange hair and pale skin. But look, an animal. It's eating the rations. Agamus gets a little scan for Mariner's pad. Detail for later. The three walk the sands, searching for water and finding a tree with edible fruits. Boimler falls reaching for the edibles, and they taste like black licorice too. Agamus needles them about how he could have made the replicator work. Cheeseburgers, blueberry muffins, guacamole. Cut to them burying Agamus, but overnight, bugs get him out. That gives Agamus a chance to show that it was Mariner who yoinked Boimler from the bug mission. She was looking out for Boimler. He just wasn't ready for that big task. The trio find an old junker, and Agamus finds it's ready for launch. Boimler and Mariner fight verbally, then physically. Things take a turn when Boimler phasers Mariner unconscious, then enters the ship. Boimler can't get into the necessary systems without auxiliary power, and Agamus offers up his own battery. Evil, yes! Agamus will create a fleet of murder drones. But wait, Agamus has been used to power an emergency beacon instead. Boimler psyched out Agamus by tricking Mariner too. Great trick! Later, the trio has been saved by a runabout, and Agamus wants to be a Starfleet officer. He's nice now, but he's still imprisoned in the Daystrom Institute for having been a naughty computer, there with all the other evil computers droning away to end the episode. Red alert. All hands stand to battle stations. Pete, with this incoming threat analysis, what are your thoughts on Agamus? Jeffrey Combs should be in every episode of Star Trek. Uh, I mean, you're right. We've had great voice actors all season long, all series long, certainly our core cast. Can't imagine these characters without them. I mean, just the way 
the way he's saying some of the uh the the blueberry muffins i can't i can't even affect it that's just the thing you know to taunt them you could be having a cheeseburger or a blueberry muffin or guacamole uh what he does with his voice with digging into these characters is nothing short of magic uh as i called him on twitter he is a chameleon and you know that we've never gotten him we've only got him in the guest uh role on star that we've never gotten him as a regular um he needs to become a regular. He would have become a regular in season five of Enterprise. That might be the greatest uh, crime ever committed in Star Trek. And I think while certainly, um, certainly I think we are all happy to know that Strange New Worlds, which is, this might seem like weird off Jeffrey Combs, but stick with me here. The fact that Strange New Worlds, uh, the doctor is Dr. Mbenga a legacy TOS character, albeit in two episodes, uh, versus Dr. Boyce. Okay, great. New character, new perspective, add to diversity and so forth. Pete, can I still hope that the maybe newly retired Dr. Boyce can can visit Chris on the Enterprise? Uh, we can get Jeffrey Combs in that role because that would have been that would have been a great that would have been a great role for Jeffrey Combs to play in Strange New Worlds. It would, but I think the way that things are laid out that he would have retired that again, you can't get him in a, in a regular situation, Find find something a little fresher, whatever you give to Combs, he, he just knocks out. I mean, geez, the number of things we've seen him in over the years, but coming back here to star Trek where he's been so special you know, Wayoon and Shran and uh, what was the Ferengi character? Brunt? Brunt, yep. Yeah. Just, you know, so many characters. And I mean, that, that he played that he played as many as he did on Deep Space Nine. And, and that alone, you know, throws that series over the top in a uh, a show with a pantheon of you know i i'd lie awake at night counting the number of recurring characters on that show and i think i got up around 40 or 50 you know just from memory um and you know he's at the the top of that list and here to play this super plum role of the star trekian trope of the the ai that took over a, a civilization we get the the religious joke right at the top of the episode so that you know it can be completely overt attempts let, let me hook into your computer let me let me do this i'll i'll whip you up a sonic shower just completely underpins this episode pete also on the list of threats here is of course queen palona of hysperia that of course Andy Bulbs' mom, voiced by June Diane Raphael, the wife of Andy Bulbs' voice actor Paul Shear. So to recap here, Andy's <laughs> mom is voiced by Paul's wife. Uh, can we add Freud to the list of villains in this episode? Yeah, I'm not quite I, sure. I think perhaps that might be uh, worth e- examining there. Um, this is such a classic Trek 
idea that a a renaissance fair society gained warp capability um and then you add in the libidinous nature of it i mean this this is already a top shelf episode of of lower decks all timer in the in the two seasons this is this is right here with any of the badgy stuff and uh yeah oh I, this is hands down my most favorite episode of lower decks this was i know i've said oftentimes when we talk lower decks you know 22 minute episode that's in the style of a 45 minute next generation this 100% without any flair of animation or, or taking away of goofiness or things like that, this could full on be a next generation era episode. It just had, I mean, I mean, this was just full, just kind of mid mid series next generation oomph to it. Fine. There was maybe not any massive major lesson to the end, but just pick, pick a random, you know, season three through five next generation episode that is not in, you know, in the hall of greats. This episode could have slid right in there, um, down to you know down down to all the twists and turns. Um, I would even argue, Pete. I mean, early your era, early half, early couple seasons of Next Generation was maybe a little bit more steamy at times, and the fact that uh, mom mom is encouraging um, her son to uh, to be sensual, and there's all that trickery and back and forth, and there's the uh, the royal guards, uh, the lady and the gal, uh, the lady and the guy, rather, both of whom are are ready to party. It it just it was it, it was in that Gene Roddenberry esque sense of naughtiness that's slightly slightly out of sync with where we're at without being you know inappropriate for TV. You know that Riker has been to Hysteria. Oh, a thousand percent. <laughs> Let me say further, Pete. Okay, fine. There's some. Uh, weird practices going on with uh, how one becomes king or queen. But what a fun play. I mean, surely people must love to go to Hysperia. And I just love this. I love this um, idea that all the Renfair cosplayers went to a planet with dragons and just, they're just living it. They're living it as their truth. Um, it's not even like some sort of... Um, like I was reading just in the last week how the original one of the pitches for uh, the Star Trek 30th anniversary episode of Deep Space Nine that became uh, that became the the Tribbles episode, Ron Moore had pitched uh, they go back to the piece of the action um, mm -hmm. planet, but they're all they're all emulating Kirk and Spock, which is they're all Star Trek fans. Ha ha ha! Like which would have been a little cheeky. This is just. Yes, I would like to go to Hyperion and live with the see the castle and eat the mu the mutton and fly a dragon. Like I'm I'm ready for Hyperion. And the you know the the ship and the interior uh you know all mimic that. Something that we're already familiar with. Again, a a classic Star Trek idea. Yeah, and I mean even even down to mom as the source of conflict in terms of the 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 trick here. I like that we don't, you know, in Star Trek in general, let alone in Lower Decks, we don't always necessarily need the threat of it's going to be another multi-species war. And, you know, the threat here is, is a very, very, <laughs> it's a very personal one between mom and son, let alone the personal thing Andy's being asked to do. 
Pete, as we set our sensors for theories, uh, can I circle back to an old concern that I've had uh, once again after being promoted to A-story status uh, earlier in the season, Tendi kind of not, in my mind, not getting getting full use in the stories in general. I think she's well used as this story wants to use her, but why no more Tendi? I think, again, the sequence in which they're airing may make it seem that way you know she's had the stuff with rutherford the concern about their relationship it it kind of mimics a little bit about you know boimler and um mariner in terms of you know the the drama that they have there over his time at um the titan uh so i'm okay with it uh, provided she gets to take the four again, which I think, you know, for me, one of the moments of the episode, and it, it's really the only time we see her, was Dr. Tana coming to tell Tendi that Rutherford was in the area of the Monavine that detonated. Um, you know, and it's amazing that in this comedy, you know, and the fake out, the feign of, He's gone, which, of course, we know is not going to happen. But then again, they killed Shax only to bring him back still without an explanation uh, in season one. Um, Where do you land on the Boimler debate? Okay, obviously, Mariner had him pulled because she felt he was not ready. She felt through much of their conflict uh, on the desert planet, albeit with her in the dark as to his real plan. She felt that he was not ready to go. Uh, fight bugs with ransom. Do you, Pete, think Boimler is ready for that for that next big step, or are you just ready for him to tell you more about the Titan, Titan, Titan? I think for me, it comes to Beckett. A reset button continually exists for her on this show. Of mom is captain, so as far as I can take it, you know, whatever damage, yes, there will be consequences, but it'll be undone. Um, so this intrigue about uh, Captain Freeman getting promoted to move Mariner forward, you got to take mom out of the equation. And then that uh, Boimler's been to the Titan and now, in a manner of speaking, is still on the Titan, which I still think we're going to see towards the end of this season. Um, you know, having that out there in play, you know, do they reintegrate him and Billy Boimler and he gets that experience and then he can, you know, at least in terms of reputation, possibly even rank, uh, you know, level up over uh, Mariner and, you know, hold that over her head. So with three episodes to go after this one, do you see... Do you see Carol off this ship um, by the end of the last episode? I mean, promoted off the ship, not off the series. You know, mom's got to check in. You you make that a underlying thread for season three. You know, oh, it's a task force with, you know, whatever ship she's promoted to and the Cerritos and they're working hand in hand, something like that. So would you then 
do we keep things copacetic with Ransom moving up to captain? Or does showrunner Pete say, no, let's come in with somebody. Let's come in with a new captain character who's going to. Oh, no, you have to Jellicoe this thing. This this has to. That's part of the humor of it. You can't just promote, you know, the, the Kirk Riker clone into the chair. That's the comedy with him being frustrated there. Um, you know, you, you bring in the polar opposite of Freeman. You make it someone that clashes with ransom and his style instead of accepting it. Um, and, uh, like I said, you know, the, the replacement jerk captain trope, you know, they, they referenced Shelby before, like that would be a dream to bring in her. You took the words right out of my mouth. Maybe we've already met that captain, you know, upwardly mobile. Could you imagine if if the captain of the Cerritos is Shelby and all these years later we we get that and like that that's a way to go. And I think that Mike Mann, you know, knowing his Star Trek and and knowing the power of comedy within drama to to play again off that and service you know 30 year old uh storyline uh would really be a lot of fun what theories do you have uh not a theory so much as more as an observation but it's amazing the commonalities we see week to week you know where we're podcasting what if on saturdays and then doing uh lower decks on sundays and in the space of two weeks, both shows referenced wet work. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a weird it's a weird world to be in, especially when it was referenced here. I was like, wait, didn't I just what? What, what what's going on here? Um, Pete, maybe it's proof that we are living in a simulation that is tailored to uh, you or me or whoever is the real one, the listener, whoever is the real one in this story. I'll take uh, writing room buzzwords during the 2020 pandemic for 800, Alex. Uh, I believe you mean uh, Mayim, okay? (laughs) Uh, This Hyperion law that in order to ascend to the throne, you must learn, or you must learn, you must lose your virginity. Virginity, of course, learning to do the do, as uh, Rutherford puts it. Um, again, you know, all the early next generation storylines that, that referenced, you know, planets of scantily clad innocent people. And then the cultures sprung up around it. Um, it, it feels again, right out of that era. Um, it really, really does to the point where it it was a bit, a little bit shocking at first I, I would say not you know not outside what i consider acceptable but just a little bit shocking but then as you say pete it's it's in line with a lot of how we viewed early next gen in the 80s and how i suspect probably a lot of people viewed uh at the very least some of the costumes on tos back in the 60s um but yeah it's a fun i mean I know that Paul Shear at some point um, had said, you know, oh, I think I think uh, Billups is a virgin. I don't know if that was with knowledge of this 
uh, this storyline coming or if it was just part of the character Bible and something <laughs> fleshed, no pun intended, out later. But, uh, you know, back when we first met him, let's not forget, Pete, reference was said to how um, he has trouble talking with women. Now we know why. If he uh, if he crosses a certain line, it's uh, got literally political importance for a whole society. The repeated insistence, nay, uh, villainization in this episode of black licorice. Uh, you know, Pete, I don't mind. I don't mind a little black licorice. I really don't. I think it's. Uh, I, I know it's an acquired taste. It's not as great as your your yellow lemon or your green spearmint and so forth. But uh, Pete, I'll take black licorice over over like a red Mike and Ike any day. It's actually not tremendous for you in large amounts. It raises your blood pressure. Um, but that the, the uh, replicator spits it out dry, then black, and then that the only fruit that's got the liquid in it they find also tastes like black licorice. <laughs> it's a great joke. It was, and and it's I, I don't know. It on the one hand it might speak to a certain uh, I don't know dark sense of humor in the universe, or it's just a funny through line, and uh, it certainly made me chuckle. Did you notice the skeletal remains in the captain's chair on the shuttle at the end of the episode? Uh, I did. It looked like maybe a Mugatu. I know it was a big yeah, horn. I, I think we're, we're hinting that there have been uh, Mugatu um, in Starfleet, uh, you know, flying out in the, in the cosmos there. Also a lot of fun. Uh, just like the calm blocking liar on the uh monavine <laughs> yeah um i mean the monavine sumptuously designed um and i like how for the time that we spend in that story which side note pete usually we have three storylines going on this was one that really was um really was just two there's a little bit of kind of tendy rutherford divergence in the monavine story uh, relative to, to billups and whatnot but unique to have two main stories not three um but we kind of can see it early on where it's you know oh this is weird that there's a blocker in here uh we should have you know we should that should have shown up in scans earlier that sort of thing it's it's just some great a to b to c kind of um story creation there and then the daystrom self-aware megalomaniacal computer storage is a treasure trove of uh visual delight yes and i have to admit i had read somewhere online before i went back to look for it that unambiguously one of the computers um it, its display is the cbs logo pete surely surely that is meant to be a slam not of the columbia broadcasting system but rather of cbs all access and all the troubles it has caused for star trek inc with not getting stuff to load on time i'm not saying it's a direct response to last week's issue where the episode was not up when it was supposed to be or you couldn't click through but surely that's a shot at cbs all access right you would have to figure that this episode was done under cbs at the time you know the the paramount change um coming within the last year so i i thought it more of a just a visually fun uh reference okay cbs did the show now we'll we'll put the little eye on on 
one of the computers uh and and then the face of batman in there as well yes it's uh so if you're if you're looking uh dear listener when you have uh, agamus in the center all same row if you go one two three over it's the cbs logo i think you can find that one easily enough once the camera pulls out and starts to light up two to the left of that it's not lighting up but you can clearly see it's got the the batman ears to it the white eyes and then you know it's again it's a little kind of out of uh out of the light there but space for the you know batman the animated series uh style mouth and chin and whatnot and um just a fun addition it has me looking at the other ones to be like oh look and then there's but there's nothing else i really spy <laughs> no, i can there. identify but i'm sure there are other meaningful shapes um agamus remains in play Badgie's still potentially in play. Can can we get that crossover? Maybe that's your, you know, episode two ten finale big showdown. I think that um, yes, we have the Packlids out there. Um, I wonder to what degree as we're heading. Is Agamus the one supplying the Packlids? Um, possibly. I mean, I think they're. There's meant to be maybe a little bit of um, Agamus hiding behind the scenes on that devil person planet. However, all it would take is, and I was also secretly communicating stuff to the Packlids where it would just, it would just work. Um, plus, I mean, look, can you go out and get Jeffrey Combs just for one episode? Sure, absolutely. Um, is it even juicier to be like, and Jeffrey Combs has Agamus Returns? Um, if anything, I kind of like the, uh, I like kind of the goofy, there's a goofy weird justice to it that like, you know, back before the show came out, okay, there's going to be some legacy people and you go, who will it be? All right. Riker shows up. Troy shows up. Riker has shown up more than once to sit and go. And also in the, you know, legacy actor returning list, you know, it goes from Jonathan Frakes to Jeffrey Combs. Like it just, it feels right. You know, we don't need, we don't need Worf showing up. It would be nice and so forth to get more Jeffrey Combs just fits like, yeah, it feels like it fits this show with that. Let's open hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. To the Twitter poll we go. And uh, Pete, I must take a little bit of a victory lap here. I felt the, uh, the, the angel of inspiration touch my shoulder as I gave these options here. Okay. Uh, Cause they're all Jeffrey Combs characters. There's Krem who I think was a, another Romul, uh, another uh, Ferengi, but Krem was a Jeffrey Combs character. Krem de la Krem got 5.6%. Shrey Incredible got 16.7%. Bruntastic got 16.7%. And then uh, winning out there is Wayunderful got 61.1%. Uh, some replies here. The first one, uh, JT Adkins. It's at JTA is me. I knew from the beginning that the Vorta computer couldn't be trusted. Nice episode. Uh, in form, it felt very TNG. And while it had lower slapstick quotient than some, it was still a lot of fun. Huzzah! James the Sagacious, that's at Big Killin on Twitter, says the tension with the two royal guards was so much fun. A plus plus plus. Uh, I'd also say, Pete, some 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 nice animation there. Uh, we heard from Jackie Wolf, that's at Jackie Wolf on Twitter. Towards the end of the episode, I thought to myself, Gene would have absolutely loved this show. Let's just consider that for a minute, Pete. I think she's absolutely correct um, that for all the you know the the 
not Gene's Trek claims. This is this is just a, a Gene Roddenberry-esque era, uh, uh, episode, rather. Uh, Jackie goes on to say uh, he would have wished, he would have thought up Billy's, uh, Billups' backstory himself. Uh, and last, Pete, but certainly not least, is Spider-Ham Lincoln. That's at Tess LC 139 Rather than the four poll options you provided, I'd say this episode was Agamissing. I liked the Mariner Boimler plot with the evil computer, and Billups' Hyperion story was funny. Not a bad one this go-around. So there you go, Pete, from Spider-Ham Lincoln. Well, Pete, with three episodes to go, of course, the podcast, as always, listeners supported by those who support us on Patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. Absolutely. Get yourself over there. All sorts of exclusives. You set the price on the value of our podcast. Uh, it takes just a dollar per month to get access to all of that, and you help us immeasurably in terms of what we can provide can't contribute this month get yourself over to apple Podcasts. leave us a rating in seconds or a review in just a little bit longer well pete as september turns to october let's keep the conversation going especially as we look ahead uh to uh october where uh what if we'll be wrapping up where lower decks will be wrapping up where we'll be previewing other things of the future so how can people be in touch with you on twitter you can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,054 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the P and the H, like it today. So, Pete, the next time we podcast something, I guess short of breaking news, it will be October. If you're here just for the Star Trek, of course, back next Sunday. If you listen to us in the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we'll be talking What If Episode 108 next Saturday. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. But I love my zone. It's so comfortable. I wish I could kiss her and squeeze her. Excuse me?